Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. If tomorrow all the things were gone, work for all my love, I had to start again. Today's the day. My dad gets out today. We're really grateful for President Trump and the first step to act. I understand that my daddy is very, very, very grateful to be coming home. It's been a very long journey of injustice, but we are very, very grateful for President Trump and creating the First Step Act, and we thank you so much. I'm very thankful to God for this First Step Act that President Trump has given us. Us as African Americans have been waiting for this for a long time, and our brother is coming home. Thank you, President Trump. God bless the USA. Clinton Stewart, 
uh, and also to bring our three brothers home, David Banks, Demetrius Harper, Dave Zerpolo, time to come home. Hang on. Ladies and gentlemen of America, this is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. Tonight, we take a look at compassionate release denied, the cruelty of our criminal justice system. And we're going to dig into that conversation. Hang on to your seat, folks. We take off right now. I'm Lamont Banks, along with Kendrick Barnes, Sampson Riddle, William Williams, and Dennis Merritt. Cliff is out tonight, and the entire AJC radio team, we welcome you into this program, as we will have a discussion tonight, one that is very troubling, that we are finding within our criminal justice system that humanity, decent humanity, is being lost. And the Compassion Release gives you an opportunity for the Bureau of Prisons for the Department of Corrections at the state and federal level to offer compassionate release, compassionate uh, exceptions, if you will, giving situations that are happening within our criminal justice system. We're going to be joined tonight by Cassie uh, Monaco. She's going to be joining us. She actually shared this with us a little bit last week on our show and a very troubling topic that must be discussed. And It's very difficult. As you look around our criminal justice system, we continue to go from decay to decay. Uh, The importance of the First Step Act, uh, in Clinton Stewart's case, he was over the age of 60. Again, this was a step uh, to help the elderly, those that are getting older. Why do we have seniors at the age of 70 and 80 years old who are no threat to society, ailing in health, and many of them terminally ill. Why are we occupying prison beds for these people who are dying and basically are no threat to us in any way? Samson, go ahead. Well, no, as, you, as we dig into this topic, I mean, you're going to hear about the criteria that they have to meet in order for uh, compassionate release, both, both age, uh, time served, and the various medical conditions they can present. And then, like, some of the cases that we've read about you know, and the in the very various articles that we have illustrate how people are just in the BOP are dragging their feet. You know, it takes you know, in one article I read, it took over four and a half months to get from the warden to the director of the prison just so that one person could get out. And the the person that they were talking about, you know, um, that was waiting on compassionate release, actually died waiting um, on that. Over 81 people have died in just since 2014 trying to get compassionate release. I mean, these are people with terminal illnesses. They don't have that much time to wait. They, they need to expedite this process. They need to get these people out. Let them die with a little dignity. I mean, like you said, there's, they're no harm to society. They're no threat. They just want to, they don't want to die behind bars. Well, and we're going to get into that. And I'm going to let, I'm not going to tell this story. I'll let Cassie tell her when she comes on uh, that she shared with us briefly last week about a, a spouse that had passed away. And I think the problem is you have a warden with too much power, and the warden can say yay or nay. And if the warden wants to be political, he can be that way, while our 
folks are suffering behind the wall. There's just certain things that is humane that should be done, that should be placed uh, uh, and, and be enforced. So I know Cassie's going to be having some folks calling in tonight to share in this discussion along with us. But I'm anxious to hear some of the stories. Um, and we're going to be actually, we'll have some clips talking about how the elderly are, de- are decaying in our prisons. Uh, those that, are, that need mental health, why are they in prison in the first place? Mental health patients need treatment, uh, not prison. That's Compassionate Relief says, look, there's nothing we can do as a Department of Corrections. Compassionate Relief says we will do, go the next step and get people help that they need. And addicts, so many addicts are in prison that shouldn't be. Compassionate Relief says release these addicts and get them into treatment programs. Get them into stuff that can help them beat the drug epidemic in this country. Because I'm going to tell you right now, there are drugs going on behind the wall of penitentiaries every single day. So what are we doing? We're just putting a situation and making it worse. And because the addictions don't change because you get locked up. And then you have people uh, bartering medication not, and selling medication, trying to get a fix of some sort. I'm going to share a story with you that I experienced uh, doing my wrongful conviction behind, uh, behind the wall. And what I saw will blow your mind when it comes to addiction and things like that. So uh, we're going to take a look at all of these issues. And, uh, folks, feel free to dial into the show tonight, 646-200-0628. That's 646-200-0628. And we will take your phone calls on the other side of the break. Again, we're going to be joined by Cassie Monaco at the bottom of the hour. This is a big one. Compassion, compassionate release denied in America's prison system. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Nine one one operator nine one. Where's the emergency? One twenty seven. Okay, what's going on there? I'd like to order a pizza for delivery. Ma'am, you've reached 911. This is an emergency yeah, line. Uh, large with half pepperoni, half mushroom? Um, you know you've called 911. This is an emergency you line. Know how long it'll be? Okay, ma'am, is everything okay over there? Do you have an emergency or not? Yes. And you're unable to talk because... Right, right. Is there someone in the room with you? Just say yes or no. Yes. Okay, um... It looks like I have an officer about a mile from your location. Are there any weapons in your house? No. Can you stay on the phone with me? No. Uh, See you soon. Thank you. The criminal justice system has a set of rights created to protect you. But do you think it's really protecting us? You had a right to remain silent. But that really means you had a right to be silent, doubted, interrogated, suspected. The color of your skin can and will be used against you in the court of law. In their hands, we're incarcerated five times more often than white people convicted for the same crimes. You have a right to attorney during questioning. In some states, 80% of criminal defendants can't even afford an attorney. So an overworked public defender controls your fate. One government employee, countless lives at stake. You had a right to be innocent until proven guilty. But somehow, about 47% of the wrongly convicted are black. And if they do prove you're guilty, they're going to write you a run-on sentence 
on average, 20% longer than white defendants accused of the same crime. Even if you get out, you're still not free. When you're an ex-con, they had a right to deny you a bank account, deny you a mortgage, deny you a job, deny your vote. And if you don't remain perfect with the smallest slip-up, smallest infraction, the most honest mistake, you're going to join us the 80% who come back to prison within five years, as I did. That's when you realize they didn't bring us here to thrive. They brought us here to build this. The plantation and the prison are actually no different. The past is the present. It ain't no coincidence. This was the plan since abolition, to keep us subjugated by creating this system. But I believe in a different set of rights. The right to stand up and be heard. The right to reform a broken justice system and build a new future. We had the right to be silent. Now it's our right to speak up. Do you understand these rights as I read them to you? We have a big problem and we need your help. It's happening on college campuses, at bars, at parties, even in high schools. It's happening to our sisters and our daughters. Our wives and our friends. It's called sexual assault and it has to stop. We have to stop it. So listen up. If she doesn't consent or if she can't consent, it's rape, it's assault. It's a crime. It's wrong. If I saw it happening and I was taught you have to do something about it. If I saw it happening, I'd speak up. If I saw it happening, I'd never blame her. I'd help her. Because I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to be a part of the solution. We need all of you to be part of the solution. This is about respect. It's about responsibility. It's up to all of us to put an end to sexual assault. And that starts with you. Because one is too many. There are no loose ends in TV procedural dramas. At the end of the hour, the bad guy always gets what's coming to him. Unfortunately, the real world is a lot more complicated. We know from the work of the Innocence Project and other organizations in the Innocence Network that the system doesn't always get it right. According to the National Registry of Exonerations, since 1989, nearly 2,000 people have been exonerated of crimes they didn't commit. What people don't realize is a good number of those people pleaded guilty to crimes even though they were innocent. In fact, in nearly 10% of the nation's DNA exonerations, people pleaded guilty to serious crimes and agreed to serve significant prison time because the system is stacked against them, especially if they are poor and people of color. That's right. The stakes are so high that we have innocent men and women agreeing to serve long prison sentences. A system that puts that much pressure on people to plead guilty is a problem. Visit guiltypleadproblem.org to learn more about the men and women who are pressured into pleading guilty to crimes they didn't commit. And join us in demanding that our elected officials do something to protect the innocent people who get caught up in a broken criminal justice system. Thank you. Meeting a teen girl online is actually pretty easy. You can go into any chat room and just start talking. Most of the girls are usually so insecure and desperate for attention. Attention from older guys is totally flattering. They're so much more mature and understanding than the guys might. Age actually works to my advantage. They like to brag to their friends that they're dating an older guy, so I just play along and pretend I'm really interested. interested in the same things I am. 
you can talk forever and really get to know someone without worrying about looks or whatever. That's the best thing about chatting. Chatting seems unthreatening to them, so they lower their guard. After a while, I start talking about how we're soulmates and how lucky we are to have found each other. Other people don't understand. I know what I'm doing. If you really care about each other, there's nothing wrong with me. Meeting them is the goal. Once I get them out of their house, well, that's when things get really interesting. Online predators know what they're doing. Do you? Ladies and gentlemen, to HSC Radio, as tonight we address the topic, compassionate release denied in our criminal justice system. This article is February 12, 2018. States here that BOP admits fewer that 10% of compassionate release bids make it past the director uh, in the Bureau of Prisons. 10% for compassionate release applications make it to the Bureau of Prisons director. 90% of people behind that wall's applications get denied for compassionate release. And there are many issues regarding uh, compassionate release that to me is just uncomprehendable. It's unimaginable. Springfield judge denies compassionate release for blind 79-year-old pot farmer states here that a Springfield judge denied a motion for compassionate release filed by a 79-year-old marijuana farmer who says his vision is deteriorating in federal prison. Charles F. Wife, 79, was sentenced in 2017 to 10 years in prison after he pleaded guilty to manufacturing more than 1,000 marijuana plants at his home in rural Polk County. Not long after White was in prison, Congress passed the First Step Act, which implemented a variety of policies to reduce prison time for nonviolent offenders, including making it easier for prisoners who are sick or elderly to get out early through a mechanism known as compassionate release. In January, White filed a motion for compassionate release saying he is legally blind and has muscular degeneration was worsening. White said his vision problems made prison life unsafe as he needed to navigate stairs and walk through hallways alongside an aggressive prison population. Federal prosecutors filed a motion in opposition, saying White had not proved extraordinary compelling circumstances that would merit early release. The government pointed to a doctor at White's facility who believed White does not need assistance at this time with his activities of daily living. In May, Judge Doug Harpool ruled against White's motion, saying compassionate release due to a medical condition is an extraordinary and rare event, and he did not believe White's condition is serious enough. Can somebody help me with this one? The guy is 79 years old, legally blind. And he's not in there for killing anybody. He's in there for growing some plants in his house. Nonviolent crime. And should, under the first step act, because of his age, should be able to walk out of prison. Yeah, but Mon, it's the it's the wording, you know, the, those legalese that they throw in there, that extraordinary and compelling. They ha- and the and the thing is, is they they leave that decision up to people like these quack doctors that are in there. Oh, he doesn't need help. The man is like you said, he's blind. He's literally trying to just basically 
navigate down hallways and stuff with people that if you bump into the wrong person, you might not get back up. And at 79, oh. at 79 years old, how's well, he going to defend himself? That's unimaginable that the prosecution would oppose uh, relief for this man. 79 years old. The point is, if you were worried about keeping communities safe, you want to tell me what a blind 79-year-old elderly man is going to do in my community? So what you have here is complete chaos in the criminal justice system. You have elderly people on canes, can't walk, they're immobile, they're diabetic. And what I've heard lately, a few years ago, that here in the state of Colorado, the Department of Corrections has canceled diet trays for diabetics and said basically to an inmate that just got out, told him, you'll have to eat what everybody else is eating. You will die. Bottom line, you're going to die. That's right. Uh, there is no compassion in the criminal justice system. There is no decency in the criminal justice system. And when you have old people that have got I don't care what they did. When you got people, elderly inmates, do you know what it takes financially to medically provide uh, medical care for inmates in the penitentiary system? You're talking millions of dollars. And whereas some of these folks can be living their last years, given the circumstances of their health, you don't have to punish them any further. The fact that they were behind bars and began to die, they are dying. I don't need to add anything to that. Um, I think it's a tragedy, uh, and that goes to not only the elderly, it goes to the mentally ill. Why are mentally ill patients not released back into society with treatment in a hospital for medical treatment, for care? Um, it, It doesn't make any sense doesn't make any sense and we're going to we're going to deal with this tonight folks that um uh, this is something uh that that is critically important Dennis your thoughts on it I look at it like this in order to have uh to even be willing to uh give someone compassionate release you have to have compassion and I think our justice system has lost that uh in one story we was reading where the warden actually granted it uh but then BOP came behind it and denied it. What story is so, that? So no matter what you, no matter what you do, you cannot, you can't, you can't win. So the situation is that there's no compassion without compassion. Well, you're not going to get things to work if, if people don't care. Let's play the clip. They're not the usual images of locked up criminals, but one growing group of inmates some say is creating a dangerous dilemma for Illinois taxpayers. He needs a lot of care. He can't hardly move. He sits in a wheelchair all day. Bill Hirons has spent more time in Illinois prisons than any other inmate alive. He's been taxpayers' obligations since age 17 when he was convicted of triple homicide. Now 82, his caregiver, a fellow inmate, says Hirons is too ill to speak himself about the $70,000 a year he requires in health care. I would say easily, easily that much. 
he's getting weaker. He's been sick a couple times, and he gets sent out to the outside hospital, I think, twice. Bill Hirons is currently housed here at the Dixon Correctional Center, the state's largest geriatrics ward. He's part of a growing group of aging inmates whose health care costs are adding up. Prisons spend two to three times more to incarcerate elderly inmates than younger ones, and as much as four times more on their health care. And it's a booming population. Between 1999 and 2007, the number of inmates 55 and older grew nearly 77%. It's grown enormously. The Illinois Department of Corrections says aging baby boomers and stricter sentencing laws are keeping more people behind bars longer, adding to the already large health care budget. It's a substantial proportion. It's over $150 million um, for health services for the Illinois Department of Corrections. Robin Best, a former corrections nurse of 28 years, says that $150 million is providing better care to inmates than the average person would receive on the outside. The quality of care is, is a lot better than people would think in a prison. For example, we do have AD requirements that say hypertensives have to be seen every four months. Having a, a grand elderly grandmother that you know died recently of a stroke, I don't think she was seen every four months. Is it possible some low-level offenders may try to get into prisons for the free health care? Oh, I think. Yes, I do. I always call it being life on the installment plan, but that will come in and out, you know, reoffend. And a lot of it is for food and health care falls into it. Despite abuses, the state says they legally have to maintain a standard of care, even if that means sending inmates to outside specialists for treatment. That was decided in 1976 by the U.S. Supreme Court where they said you have to attend to medical necessities of inmates and cost is not an object. But the rising cost of health care coupled with the sprouting elderly population has caught the attention of some in Springfield. In 2009, a bill recommended early release for inmates over 50 who'd served at least 25 years. Supporters used studies to show older inmates are 40% less likely to reoffend. But the proposal was shot down in the House. One of the lawmakers who voted no Representative Pat for sure. Analysts said elected officials worried they'd become portrayed as soft on crime. For saving a few dollars, it's, it's not worth someone getting killed. It's, you know, I don't care how much you save if you lose one life. Upholding public safety while protecting taxpayers. A dilemma growing more expensive each day as Illinois inmates gray into more Bill Hirons. There's one that are far worse off than him. Oh, there you have it. There is no care that is sufficient in the Department of Corrections. The federal and state prisons are lacking drastically when it comes to medical care. If someone is thinking they're going to get medical care, and let's just reoffend so we can get free food, let me tell you, the food is garbage. The medical care doesn't exist. And it looks like here, December 19th, 2018, a story went out about the United States Senate passed sweeping legislation to improve the criminal justice system, including a bipartisan measure authored by U.S. Senator Brian Schatz of Hawaii. The granting release and compassion effectively 
or GRACE Act is aimed at improving the Bureau of Prisons' approval process for compassionate release. According to Charles, 81 elderly terminally ill people have died in federal prisons waiting for compassionate release approval over the last four years. Schott said the bill will create clear guidelines in the approval process so that there's, no, there's more accountability in the system and the sick and elderly who qualify for compassionate release get it. Too many people who are eligible for, for compassionate release die in prison because the decision takes so long and many others wait for months just to get a response. Clearly the system is broken, said Senator Schatz. That is absolutely the truth. So it looks like members of Congress have set out to correct this issue. But the problem you have, you have left it in the hands of the Bureau of Prisons, which do absolutely nothing when it comes to enforcing legislation. They are now having pressure put on them for the First Step Act to let people out over the age of 60 and other qualifying factors. What is the problem? Compassionate release means that there are circumstances that dictate not only a release, but a furlough to go bury your loved ones and to to, to say goodbye to those that you may have lost. We're going to deal with that. David Banks was denied a furlough, which in the Bureau of Prisons website states he qualified under every measure of qualifying to go bury his sister, LaWanna Bank Clark, who we lost a year and almost a half ago. And they refused him any type of furlough. That is compassionate release. And that wasn't sufficient, but they gave people R&R passes for a weekend. Not to bury anybody, just to go home with your wife. Just to have some free time with your family. David Banks lost his sister, who he was very close to. Why is that? And how is that? And apparently it's the main problem because the United States Senate says we have a problem here because things are not being approved. 81 people died waiting to just hear back and say, I'm dying. I need to go get out of here. That's what compassionate release is for. Go ahead, Kendrick. And jumping off of the medical care, that's kind of the first obstacle you got to get through to get compassionate release. If you're sick. It takes you forever in the first place to try to get the medical care to diagnose your illness, to get a real medical doctor to look at you. That takes forever. You're getting sicker and sicker. Then once you get that diagnosis, that goes to the BOP, and you're, and you're, and you're using that, all this evidence. I mean, this could take a year before you can get a chance to even see a doctor to get that they'll let you leave the facility to see a real medical doctor who's going to do their job. Then you apply for passionate release, and then you have to deal with the obstacles of the BOP who are not medical professionals nor legal experts interpreting what the law says on compassionate release on, on if they think you're sick enough, if they think that you're going, you're probably not going to die before your sentence ends. It just, it doesn't make sense. So you have so many hurdles that you have to go to just to get to the point to apply, which is why they needed those changes in the first step back so that there's options. People well, are losing their lives like the day after they're being uh, denied their compassionate well, release. Well, it says here, authorized under the Sentencing Reform Act of 1984, which also eliminated people, uh, excuse me, eliminated parole for federal prisoners. Compassionate release gives people incarcerated in federal prisons an opportunity to appeal for early release. 
for extraordinary and compelling reasons, including advanced age and terminal illness. Under the Grace Act, the following would take place. It would allow an individual to petition to a federal court if they fully exhaust all administrative rights to appeal or if the Bureau fails to bring the motion within 30 days. Set up an expedited process for terminal illness cases. Allows prisoners, attorneys, or families to file on their behalf. Require the Bureau to include compassion release in their staff training and prison handbooks. And create a reporting requirement for the Bureau of Prisons. People released under compassion release have a 3.5% recidivism rate, the lowest rate among all those formerly incarcerated. Additionally, incarcerated individuals 50 years and older have a 15% rearrest rate compared to a 41 rearrest for the general federal prison population. Uh, and uh, this, is, this is something that is, is absolutely uh, uh, clear that there's a problem, and they're trying to fix that problem. And I believe we have a caller uh, on the line, and I believe it is our uh, very special guest, Cassie Monaco, who really was the birth of this title of this show. And Cassie, thank you so much for being with us. Are, are you with us? I am, Lamont. Thank you so much for having me back. I really appreciate it. No, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule. As you, I don't know how much you've heard of this show so far. Um, some very troubling numbers and statistics here that uh, members of Congress, the United States Senate, have pursued some type of action to be taken on compassionate release. And I, it's not only, again, people who are terminally ill. Uh, it's people who are suffering as a result that you've shared. I'm going to let you share the story. And I think you've got many of them to share with us. I understand there are going to be other people calling in uh, to get into yes. the conversation. Yeah, so excited we, about that. Yeah, we look forward to that. Uh, tell us a little bit about the young man whose wife of 50 years uh, passed away recently. Tell us that story and how he was denied compassionate release. Well, first of all, um, yes, this was in Denver at Inglewood. Jimmy Massat, one of the most kindest, gentle, a gentle man and a gentleman you would ever want to meet. He was towards the end of his sentence, a, a nonviolent um, offender, and um, he was at the camp. His wife suffering uh, from terminal cancer. So clearly he wanted to go be with his wife and care for his wife as it was terminal. He was denied compassionate release. But then to top it off, if that didn't hurt you enough, his wife of 50 years died of 50 years. He requested a furlough. Okay, I'm going to start crying. Damn it, I'm always so emotional. No, he requested a, a, a furlough um, just to go be with his wife at her funeral to say goodbye. And that, in addition, was denied. So we talk about compassionate release. The problem is, is that our Bureau of Prisons, they don't have that element of compassion. When I heard that uh, Jimmy Massat was denied the furlough of going to say goodbye to his wife, I was in tears. How could not any human being feel that element of compassion, that, that ache in the heart, to approve that man to 
for 48 hours to be with his family. Exactly. Just to say goodbye to his wife. Yeah, Jimmy is, and this was towards the end of his sentence. And uh, Jimmy has uh, since been released, and I have heard from him. But I can't imagine the ache of now being released and the lack of joy that he has, you know, because his his wife is now gone and he did not have the opportunity to show her and kiss her and hug her just one last time. That's got to be a horrible, empty feeling. Who made the decision uh, for not to, I would presume it was the warden, correct? It was the warden. That's absolutely correct. Yeah, and that um, that was before the first step back passed. Yes. So my question is, and I don't understand. Um, see, BOP is a fraud. That's what they mm-hmm. are. If you go to their website, it they'll tell you all the nice things that come with a furlough, and that you all. Mm-hmm. Come. Because you're an inmate, a model inmate, and you haven't gotten in any trouble. And you can meet all the criteria that qualifies you for that furlough. And we'll go as far as to say the furlough, they can give you up to 30 days mm-hmm. in a family situation. They talk about an extreme situation when we looked up the definitions of it regarding my brother, especially exceptional circumstances as a death. My brother, David Banks, qualified to say goodbye to his sister, just as this elderly man probably qualified to say goodbye to his uh-huh. wife of 50 years. And so the, so the website is a joke. It's a lie. Because they, it apparently yep. is because they said only 10% are even granted compassionate mm-hmm. relief of any kind. Uh-huh. So if the members of Congress and the United States Senate say, look, we're going to look into this. We have to do legislation to make this possible. Um, let me read you the definition of compassionate release really quick. It is a process by which inmates in criminal justice systems may be eligible for immediate early release on grounds of uh, particularly extraordinary or compelling circumstances which could not be reasonably have been foreseen by the court at the time of sentencing. Nobody can foresee a terminal illness on an inmate. I, we, we were talking earlier about the young man uh, that the judge denied compassion release. He was blind and 79 years old, and they would not release this man. Now, I can tell you right now, the penitentiary, you can be mm-hmm. blind wandering around and not, not have, uh, be able to see. You are moments away from, from an assault. Of everything thought imaginable there He's not a threat to society Because he's blind He's 79 uh-huh. years old The judge said They didn't see it was exceptional circumstances To release him Can you explain that to me? I can't I'm, I'm at a loss And I've been thinking about this uh, For so long In this particular case This was the judge that denied it Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No. No, I don't. Um, it's just pure cruelty. Is is all it is. It's just being mean. Who who benefits 
from this 79-year-old blind man continuing to be incarcerated. Who benefits from that? Well, the sad I part about BOP because they continue or to um, you know get money for him. What doesn't make sense though is that the medical care that taxpayers will pay. But here's the pro- mm-hmm. here's the sickness of it all. They've cut a lot of med- medical care out in the penitentiaries. They used to give when I was wrongfully convicted seven years in the state of Colorado. Um, they would give us flu. Uh, if, if somebody caught the flu, you go down to the med line, they'll give you Sudafed. They'll give you different medications to help you get through the flu. By the time mm-hmm. my wrongful conviction ended, they were, they were giving you, telling you to order ibuprofen on commissary. That was For it. Sure. For so, sure. And, um, go ahead. No, I mean, just because you, you brought this up, Lamont, and, you know, this doesn't have to do with compassionate release, but, um, you know, just as a side note from what mm-hmm. you just brought up, you know, my husband, um, who was also incarcerated in Colorado this past um, late summer, his, or actually um, in April, May, his white blood cell count was rising. And they're like, oh, you know, we'll check it. So they kept checking it. And then at some point in October, it went up to uh, like 58,000. And a normal white blood cell count is four to 10,000. So they finally sent him out where a doctor ruled out leukemia and said, oh, it's a double kidney and spleen infection. They kept him in the hospital for the day, not the night, just for the day, and gave him three bags um, IV medication and then sent him back uh, to the prison where he was to get a prescription to take for the next couple weeks. So 10 days into this prescription, he goes in to get his blood work done and nothing has changed. And he's getting weaker and sicker. We'll come to find out the prescription that the doctor at the hospital prescribed, the antibiotic, the pharmacist decided not to fill it because it was too expensive. So they gave him amoxicillin, which would never touch this, um, this type of infection. And he kept asking for help. You know, well, what can I do? I need more medicine. Nobody would help him. He finally got desperate and knocked his door um, at the ADX because he was working there. And the doctor took his blood on a Friday, said, I'll have your results by Monday. Monday morning, 9 a.m., they came to, at 6 a.m., they came to get my husband, rushed him to the hospital, and put him on dialysis. My husband's white blood cell count at that point was 193,000. He was in renal failure. He was close to death. Now, by the BOP trying to save money by giving him amoxicillin, now we've had to pay for another hospital stay, two rounds of dialysis, and actually the medication he was um, to be given. So there is just no common sense. There is no compassion and you're correct the medical um care there is so negligent and people are dying needlessly well i'll tell you this uh your husband could have very well been a statistic Mm -hmm. i mean thank god he was very very close to it yes i mean thank god for the doctor that said i'll take your blood and they woke him up and what what 
in the world is going on in this country? And how is it that the Bureau of Prisons sits back and there is no accountability for what these people do? They continually oppress people, and now you are not allowed under the law to withhold medical care from inmates. You're not supposed to be able to do that. And if that is the law, why are these people not being held accountable? That is uncomprehendable to me. And yeah, no, go ahead. Great. The, the, accountab- the accountability the last time um, in December uh, when I was in D.C., I did. I, that was when I went lobbying, when I went knocking on <laughs> our representative doors. That was the case I brought to them was the negligent health care within our, our prison systems and how people are losing their lives, losing their limbs, losing their eyesight, well, just dying needlessly. This is uncomprehendable. And we're going to talk a little bit more, Cassie. Uh, I'm waiting. Hopefully your, uh, your other uh, people that are going to call in will call in. This is a serious discussion. I don't know how we get through it in one show. Uh, we'll have to pick it up next week, part two. If you if you're available, we'd love to have you back. But this is extremely important. That as you sit at home tonight, ladies and gentlemen, and lay your head on your pillow tonight with a loved one behind the wall, no guarantees here. I hate to say that there are no guarantees. No, nope. but there are none. No, and and you don't, and you know, Lamont, you know, you and I are sitting here just talking about a few cases. This is just a few out of hundreds of thousands of cases. Yes. I mean, the suffering. It's not a fluke. No, it's not. No, it's not. And Mm -hmm. we got to talk about it. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, feel free to dial into the show tonight, 646-200-0628. That's 646-200-0628. We are joined uh, by Cassie Monaco, an advocate for justice, who is fighting and brought this subject to our attention, and we said we're going to talk about it on this show. Again, we'll never get through it in one show. We will be bring part two next week. Compassionate release denied without cause. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. You must have thrown a thousand pitches teaching him to hit a home run. Spent countless Saturdays running routes so he could learn to hit an open receiver. Endless afternoons teaching him how to hit the three-pointer. But how much time have you spent teaching him what not to hit? Teaching boys that all violence against women is wrong is one of the most important things a man can do. Learn how to start the conversation at teachearly.org. Brought to you by Futures Without Violence and the Ad Council. children struggles with hunger in America. 
support the Feeding America nationwide network of food banks to help provide meals to those in need. Join us at feedingamerica.org. For a kid whose mom or dad is in prison, life is tough. Now add a wrongful conviction to that, life just got a little bit tougher. Trying to explain to friends why mom or dad is not at the school play or at the ball game is something that no kid should ever be faced with. Especially if mom or dad is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, get involved today to stop the epidemic of wrongful convictions by remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause today, 1-855-529-4252. We seek justice for the children. As they go to bed at night and mom's not there, dad's not in the other room, to make them feel safe. Not because dad or mom did anything wrong, because justice could not be found. Join us for the children, for they truly are our future. to the chain. It was just a joke. We're not friends. Why are you talking to me? You started it. It's so gross. Lame. Loser. Weirdo. I've said and done things before that I'm not proud of. Just as I've been hurt by others. The thing is, this, this is not who I am. And it's definitely not who I want to be. I don't want to be cruel. I don't want to spread gossip. I don't want to be a body shaver. I don't want to exclude anyone. I don't want to make anyone feel lonely. Left out. Hurt. <laughs> We can create a kinder world. It's not that hard. We just need to stop. Take a moment. And consider others before we speak. And before we act. Be more. Be more. Be more. Odds of becoming an astronaut. One in 13,200,000. Odds of being struck by lightning. One in 576,000. Odds of dating a supermodel. One in 88,000. Odds of bowling a perfect game. 1 in 11,500. Odds of being trapped in an elevator. 1 in 24,528. Odds of catching a ball at a major league game. 1 in 563. Odds of an injury from shaving. 1 in 6,585. Odds of tripping while texting. 1 in 10. Odds of getting cancer in your lifetime. 1 in 2 men. 1 in 3 women. It's up to us to change the odds for our generation, for the ones we love, for our future. If you don't like the odds, stand up. Stand up to cancer. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio, as we are troubled tonight to learn 
that compassionate release has left the building in America's criminal justice system. I am joined by uh, Cassie Monaco, uh, who has shared her story, a dear friend of this uh, radio program and a just cause. What we have heard tonight is beyond tragic. Uh, We do have Rachel Douglas uh, that's going to be joining us right now. Uh, I believe, Cassie, this is someone uh, that you are uh, aware and are friends. Rachel, are you with us? I am. How are you doing this evening? Doing good. Thank you so very much for joining us tonight. Cassie, are you there? I am here. Yes. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Cassie. (laughs) Thanks for calling in. Well, we learned something. Hey, Annie. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say it's my it's my privilege to be able to just share uh, some of um, our story, just a little bit of of uh, the details. Um, I know I've shared um, in a couple different articles um, with the New York Times and the Huffington Post and the Marshall Project. So, I mean, it's out there, but the more we talk about it, the more it brings awareness, right? No, absolutely right. Yes. Something that needs to be discussed, uh, Rachel. I've learned uh, just a little bit uh, regarding. Uh, is it your father that was going to be released? Um, it was my stepdad, actually. Okay. Um, yeah. So uh, Steve Cheatham was his name, and him and my mom actually met through my brother. My brother is serving a twenty-five mandatory minimum sentence for a. Uh, nonviolent low-level drug offense, um, and he was incarcerated with my mom's husband, and that's how they met. And uh, it was actually a pretty cute love story, and um, I'll kind of get into that a little bit more. But so my mom was diagnosed with uh, stage four lung cancer in April of 2017, and um, I want to say it was July. Um, Steve was waiting for transfer to another facility, and he began to have um, severe stomach pains. And so um, they would give him uh, ibuprofen and hot water bottles um, to help ease the pain, and it wouldn't ease the pain. I mean, he was in excruciating pain. And they wouldn't do any tests on him or anything, um, and they kept telling him that he, he had to wait till he got to his next facility. And so finally, in September, so we're talking from July of 2017 to September of 2017, he had to deal with this daily, this pain, um, and they weren't treating him at all. Well, when he finally got moved to um, his new facility, they did tests on him and found out that he had um, uh, advanced aggressive cancer, and it had gotten to the point where it had spread rapidly. Um, They told him that he was not eligible for chemo because the cancer had spread. And at that point, you know, we were unaware of compassionate release. We, I mean, that wasn't even in our vocabulary at that time. So um, as it progressed, he got, you know, weaker and weaker, and they they entered him into hospice um, in December. And... I want to say it was the beginning, the end of November is when we really started to 
um, I'm kind of a researcher, so I would spend hours online just trying to figure out how we could get him home because he had, he had a year left on his sentence, and then he was coming home. But we knew that he didn't have much time. So um, I discovered a compassionate release at that point in time. It was the end of November of 20, I want to say it was 2018, and so we filed his compassionate release. And, of course, anybody who knows anything about compassionate release, you have to file it at the um, administrative level first. So you have to file it with the prison, um, with the warden of that facility. And, of course, we didn't hear anything. They have 30 days to respond. And so after the 30 days, <laughs> Uh, the government shut down. So we had actually filed his compassionate release in um, the courts, and that's when the government had shut down. So we were at a standstill, um, and, and his time was, I mean, he was slipping away. And the thing is, is when they call home, um, you know, they say their name on the phone, you know, this is so-and-so, and so from a, a federal prison, and so he wasn't calling home at all, and my mom was calling the prison. I mean, at this point, she was calling just to make sure he was still alive, and they were married, and they were not giving her any information at all about him, so it was like holding our breath um, for a very long time, you know, because we didn't know, and they're not you know, on the up and up about keeping families informed about what's going on. So my mom, uh, it was New Year's Eve. We were all at my house. And mind you, she's still fighting her cancer. So she's got her cancer, and he's, he's incarcerated with his. And, you know, he called home on New Year's Eve, and I remember the conversation so clearly because my mom screamed, and um, he said, you know, sweetheart, I don't, I don't think I have much time left. I just don't know how much longer I can hold on. And uh, she begged him on the phone, you know, please just hang on a little bit longer. Just hang on a little bit longer. We're going to get you home. When in the meantime, we were stepping out in faith. So we had started gathering all of this stuff um, to turn her house into a triage center because we knew that when he came home, he was going – he was basically coming home to die is what, what we were preparing for. And so on, uh, my mom got a hold of the um, Kentucky Public Defender's Office after the First Step Act passed, and she explained the situation. And Steve was given at that point um, three to six months to live. And um, on January 31st, of 2019, um, the public defender's office called my mom, and I will never forget that day. And they told her that the judge had just signed the paperwork. Now, mind you, this is at like 1.30 in the afternoon. So she gets off the phone with him, and she calls the chaplain right away. And... I'm very surprised that she even got through to the chaplain, but she did. And 
she explained to him, you know, look, the judge signed the order. I really want you to go up there and tell him right away. And so I don't know what kept him from going up right away, but um, he ended up going up there at 2.15 p.m. on January 31st, and Steve had passed at, like, 2.12 p.m. So he died a free man, but it was too late. And, you know, when you think about it, um, and I've heard horror stories, and I and I don't want to believe that that was the case with my stepdad. But, um, you know, the, these guys are—they're dying. They're dying, and they're handcuffed to beds. You know, they're not a threat. You know, and they—they—they they, they should be given some sort of human decency. You know, and they're not. And uh, so that pretty much devastated my mom. And, um, you know, she just, I mean, she was devastated. You know, we went from from being on top of the world, Steve's coming home, to, you know, he died. And well, it, it was just heart-wrenching. It, um, let me first say, on behalf of AJC Radio, Just Cause Organization, everybody in this room tonight, my sincere condolences for the loss of this young man um, and for what your family has gone through. What is Thank you. What is very upsetting to me is the nonsense of dragging this when they could have easily said this man is ill, let him go. Yeah. Let him go. And if I'm reading this correctly, he died four minutes before his release. Yeah, yeah. It, well, the judge had signed the paperwork, so I like to tell people when I'm when I'm conveying this story to them that he won because he did die a free man. It may not have been at home with us, but he still died a free man. And from what I understand um, from the public defender's office, Steve, he was the first case after the First Step Act passed. Um, that was released through compassionate release. I don't know how true that is, but I would like to say that he's probably one of the first at that no. point. Yes. But uh, my mom was, she was heartbroken, you know, and at this point, you know, the loss of her husband, and they had so many dreams of of traveling and and being with his parents because his parents are still alive. You know, and just spending time with them, and and it was it was stolen, you know. And I really feel like, had they been on top of his uh, his illness in the first place, he may have had a little bit more time. But they failed on every single level when it came to treating him. No, absolutely, and that's unacceptable. It's unacceptable that people are dying behind the wall when two words. Can free them. Yeah. Compassionate release. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. the bottom line. And until we make people aware, as I said earlier on this program, the Bureau of Prisons is a joke. Yeah. I don't know why they it, I mean, at this it. point, it is. It I'll really tell you is. something, and Cassie and I have really talked about this before, is, you know, I really. Uh, the anger that boiled in me 
I, I used it as motivation. So I started researching because at this point, my mom's still fighting for her life. So I thought, you know what, let's see what we can do to get Dan out, my brother, because my brother's still in prison. You know, he's, he's still in prison. He's doing remarkable things. He's got a job lined up with um, uh, a nonprofit called Steered Straight where he's wanting to get out of prison to go back into the prisons and give his testimony. And so I, uh, I, I started doing some research, and I figured out, you know, that, that a lot of these for-profit prisons really started back in the 80s. And so there was a man named Thomas Beasley, and he actually was um, the owner. I mean, for-profit prisons have been around for a long time, but he actually um, had the first nonprofit or for-profit prison. Well, Thomas Beasley was very good friends with Ronald Reagan. So it's just a matter of following the money, really is what it boils down to, you know. Yes. So fast forward a little bit, we um I started a campaign. I, I I was I was um I was gonna get my brother out. Now see my brother did not have anything wrong with him and there's I kinda like the way they set up compassionate release with the words 'cause I'm all about words and and loopholes and <laughs> so yes. I really just sat there and stayed on the verbiage of compassionate release. And there's a section of it that is for extraordinary and compelling reasons. And um, I thought about it and I thought, well, anything that couldn't have been foreseen at the time of sentencing happening after while incarcerated could be extraordinary and compelling. Absolutely. So, we filed, um, we're getting ready to file uh, his CR um, for his merits because my brother has done some pretty outstanding stuff while he's been in prison. Um, and he's got a lot of support from the community. But um, unfortunately, um, in November, November 24th, um, our mom passed away. So sorry. And that was going to be one of the things that drove the CR motion was for him to come home and be with his mom, you know. And and that was a whole debacle because when she passed away, my brother had actually called the prison to inform him and uh, left a message with the chaplain. Nobody ever called us back. I had to call the prison back and there was one guard that remembered um, my mom and I from, uh, from when we went to visit. And that's how we met Cassie, because Cassie actually sent my mom out there to see Dan in September, which uh, I don't want to get emotional, but I can't, okay. I can't even describe to you what that no. meant to her to see no. her son. And so he remembered who we were. And um, within 10 minutes, Dan called home. And uh, I had to tell him, I'm sorry. You know, we tried. You know, but we couldn't bring him home before she passed. I hate how they group people and they label people. 
And there is no rehabilitation in prison. Let me tell you, it is up to the person to do their own rehabilitation efforts because they don't offer programs to these people. And that's ultimately what it is, rehabilitating them. You know, my brother was a drug addict for 33 years, 33 years from some trauma that happened to him as a child that he didn't know how to deal with, you know, and, and so they locked him in a cage for 25 years, you know, and didn't rehabilitate him. Drugs are readily available to drug addicts in prison. And, you know, and it's one of those things to where, you know, it, it's, it's so broken. It's so broken. And you just want to stand up and scream, fix it, fix it. You know, but it's like, it's falling on deaf ears. Well, I'll tell you right now, Rachel, Cassie, uh, I'm moved to tears um, for your pain and your loss. And to have the prison and the criminal justice system that shows no care is a tragedy. We have left. It is. I can tell you right now, this country has lost her way. And Oh, yeah. My sincere, again, I'm so sorry for the loss of your stepdad, of your mother, and to have to go through this, you don't have words to express our deepest uh, condolences to you and your family. Um, if, you guys you. Can stay, if you guys can stay with us, we're coming back. Uh, we have a Georgine Arsons, I think that's her name. Um, Cassie, you, you know who she is? Cassie, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can now. Georgine Arsons. Do you know who yes, she is? Yeah, I don't know her. Yeah, I do not know her personally, but she okay. does have a story to share also. All right. Georgine, hang in there with us. We're going to take a quick break. Come back. What a, what a, what a show. What a story of extreme tragedy. But for the voices of Cassie Monaco, Rachel Douglas, Eugene Arsons, who we're going to hear from on the other side of this break. This story must be told, as painful as as it is. Um, We seek for justice. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Over a million people are sitting in the prisons of America for nonviolent offenses. That's why I'm asking you to join the American Civil Liberties Union and help us in the fight to end mass incarceration. We spend over $80 billion a year incarcerating people. Alternatives to prison, like community service, drug treatment, and rehabilitation, costs less and can turn lives around. It's time for fear justice. It's time for smart justice. And we need your help. Our criminal justice system is really violating our values as a people. Uh, We are as a nation have this land of the free, 
this nation that, that uh, savors liberty and those ideals, really that were lights into the globe, uh, now incarcerates more human beings than any other nation on the planet. Like any system, it always needs refining adjustments, and I think that's where we are now. Um, as far as policing is concerned, I think policing in America has done a very effective job over the last uh, two decades because crime is down. Crime is down significantly throughout the country, with some exceptions. Um, and I attribute that to smarter policing, better policing, more effective policing, proactive policing. Policing in some sense a victim of its own success in the following sense. And that is that crime rates have plummeted in the last 30 years. At the same time, public support, public trust, um, public confidence in policing over the same time period has remained flat. The public actually cares a great deal more about how they are treated uh, by public authorities, legal authorities, then they care about the effectiveness of police. My first experience getting uh, hit with tear gas and rubber bullets was on August the 12th, uh, which really radicalized me in a way to want to pursue uh, reform efforts, not only just in Ferguson, but all throughout St. Louis and the entire country. Because, you know, the experience of getting tear gas and hit with rubber bullets was so unbelievable. You know, I... I couldn't imagine something like that could happen in modern day America. If your intention is to, you know, jail massive numbers of people, if you believe that, you know, our prison uh, is an effective means of dealing with the myriad uh, social needs of the African-American community, then, then, it, then it's pretty effective. Now, I know no one would come out and say something like that. You know, that, that sounds insane. Um, but in fact, there's a long history in this country of dealing uh, with problems in the African-American community through criminal justice system, criminalizing social problems in a way that we don't do in other communities. There are about 140,000 people uh, in the United States who are serving life without parole sentences. The number of people serving life without parole sentences in Western Europe is 12. These very long sentences uh, that are being served is a very unusual feature of American criminal justice. They serve very little public safety effect. Really good study shows that we'd have probably 20% less poverty in the United States if we weren't over-incarcerating at the rate that we are because it has such an impact on people's future earnings when they get out of prison. It has an impact on their children uh, and their overall quality of life uh, for their families. But in addition to all that, uh, it is uh, disproportionately punishing minorities in this country as well. There's no difference between blacks and whites for using drugs or even dealing drugs. But yet African-Americans are about almost four times more likely to be arrested for that. Well, I, I think our criminal justice system um, is working as intended. Um, it is only broken to the extent that our, our society is broken. Okay, everybody, it's going to be just plain hot out Almost 40 children die of heat stroke after being forgotten in a vehicle in 70 degree weather. It takes only minutes for the inside of a car to heat up like an oven. At 104 degrees, heat stroke begins, followed by loss of consciousness. Yeah. It's an hour and a half or so.
Leave without your child. Live without them forever. Look before you lock. Brought to you by Kids in Cars. back ladies and gentlemen to AJC Radio as tonight we have crossed in some territory of conversation that is troubling at minimum um, we've been joined by Cassie Monaco, Rachel Douglas um, I think we lost connection with Miss Douglas uh, if you are listening please dial back in uh, we want to properly thank you for what you have shared tonight as well but now we bring in Georgine Arsons uh, who has a story to tell as we deal with compassionate release, really is denied more than not. And as a result, people and families are suffering across this nation. Families are suffering because we have a system that has lost its humanity. Tonight we address that issue. Georgine Arsons, are you with us? Yes, I am. Thank you very much. And uh, I just want to say I recognize my senator's voice, Senator Cory Booker, who has been such a strong advocate for uh, all inmates, but certainly the federal inmates. So certainly appreciate uh, being a resident of New Jersey and having him as my senator. But um, I'm, I'm here to talk tonight about a woman who is currently incarcerated in the federal prison system and who is dying of stage four breast cancer. And her compassionate release motion was denied on February 12th of this year. And this woman is a young 43-year-old woman um, who has been in the federal prison system since uh, approximately uh, December of 2015. And um, the little bit of history for her is that um, in 2006, she uh, was diagnosed with multifocal uh, breast cancer at the age of 30. And she was treated, uh, you know, with the chemotherapy, I believe, radiation, had a double mastectomy and some reconstruction. And uh, by 2010, uh, you know, it was evaluated that her cancer was in remission. But she was told then, and certainly from that time on, underwent the normal, uh, regular, at least every six-month testing that, you know, is mandated um, for breast cancer survivors. So um, she, unfortunately, uh, between 2010 and when she entered f- federal prison, she was she was dealing in drugs um, in her state and served a two-year uh, state prison sentence for 
dealing in drugs, and uh, she had just completed her probation. She went back into doing this uh, criminal activity and, um, you know, was, you know, apprehended, charged, convicted, etc. So um, she entered federal prison, as I say, in late 2015. And um, she was first serving her sentence in a prison in her local state, and she was familiar with the area. And um, they, that prison sent her out to the local cancer center um, to de- develop a uh, course of um, testing that she was going to need while she served her time in prison. So this was well documented. Mm-hmm. Um, but then she was transferred away from her home state to a different state. And so in 2016 and um, into 2017, um, she gradually began to experience symptoms, which she recognized uh, that she felt, you know, could be the return of cancer growth. Um, This was particularly initially in her lung area and in her left hip. And um, she continually, and I have the, the record of this, she continually documented um, and submitted what are called BP forms, which are, you know, request forms within the uh, Bureau of Prison System, asking for attention, asking for medical diagnosis, um, you know, asking to see an oncologist. Uh, because, of course, she she was very concerned and frightened that the, the cancer could be de, uh, returning. And in at no time in 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, at no time at this prison did they ever once send her to a doctor or an oncologist outside the prison for any diagnosis or care. So this continued, these symptoms um, continued, this pain, and, uh, you know, into her neck, she would have pain in her midriff area where you might think uh, the liver was affected and so forth. And um, in late 2019, she literally started um, bleeding from the mouth, and they had to send her to an ER. And the doctor there was just shocked and mortified. Um, They did CT scan, blood work, of course, the whole thing. And um, this is well documented, but just shocked at how extensive the cancer had developed in her body. So they sent her back to the prison and um, did nothing, did nothing. And one month later, in November of 2019, she passed out. And the women that were with her literally thought she had died because she was just that uh, still. But it turned out she did not die. They sent her again to a different ER this doctor at this ER was equally as shocked and just mortified at her condition. They did other tests, 
confirmed again the extensive development of the cancer. And, uh, I mean, basically it was, uh, you know, I mean, it was pretty clear that all of this was coming um, from breast cancer, which had returned um, and Mm. had spread throughout her body. So um, they had a second report, and they did nothing. And um, they, she was asking, uh, she had filed her administrative remedies and asking mm-hmm. the BOP to uh, grant her compassionate release. Um, mm-hmm. But um, I think with the second report in November, that prison certainly realized that um, this was a pretty, pretty serious situation. So right after the first of the year, actually on January 8th, they Mm -hmm. transported her to a federal medical center um, by air transport with two other women who were equally seriously ill. And um, she is now being treated at this federal medical center. Um, However, uh, her diagnosis is she will she will not recover it is just a matter of how long they are able to prolong her life with the treatment that she is being given which started on january 17th Uh, she has a port in her neck where she receives the treatment um and she has i think received four treatments uh thus far um, but uh, the BOP declined to, um, you know, file with the court for compassionate release because they say that um, she's undergoing treatment and that her life expectancy is indeterminate, that they do not know that she's going to die from cancer. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? No, right. I'm not. I am not kidding you. <laughs> I wish I were. And this is this is a current case. She, you know, this is going on as we speak right now. And this is what is. This is so tragic. And she is not atypical, as as uh, Ra- Rachel described. You know, her own stepfather's situation. This is not atypical. Th- this is typical of the BOP yes. system. Yes. So um, her attorney filed with the court for compassionate release on January 25th, and uh, the judge gave the government two weeks, uh, which is a short period of time, to respond, but the BOP Mm -hmm. had all the the medical data that they needed, you know, from... The, I mean, the testing that had been done there thus far at the medical center, and um, the judge denied her. And um, are you the, kidding me? The primary reasons that he he denied her is that um, she is undergoing a course of treatment, and based on the what the BOP or uh, let's say the government said. They do not know what her life expectancy is. And you see the, the key um, time frame with the BOP is 18 months. If they can say that you have less than 18 months to live, 
then normally the BOP will go ahead and support the compassionate release motion. But if they can't determine or claim they can't determine, then they will not support the compassionate release motion. In this case also, the judge said that this woman is continues to be a danger to the community, even though I failed to tell you that she is wheelchair bound and can really barely stand now with the effects of the cancer in her left leg. And um, she, I just received a message literally tonight over email that she has entered palliative care, the palliative care unit. She, she didn't want to enter the palliative care unit because the little bit of, let's say, uh, ability to be wheeled around the campus and have some just extremely limited freedom, you know, will be totally removed if she entered palliative care. But she had a mobility and functionality test today, and I guess the uh, results were so bad that um, they encouraged her and she agreed to enter palliative care today. So mm-hmm. she will now basically be confined to that unit. And I understand just, you know, uh, through her impressions that these people there that run the palliative care unit are not the most friendly, even though you think that they would be extremely sympathetic to people in these circumstances. But that is not the case. Well, Not at all. I can tell you this, that um, this is a nightmare. And it goes it is back a nightmare. To, and it goes I, back, and it, go, it goes back to BOP. Uh, the Bureau of Prisons, someone has to answer at the top of this, not of this insanity. BOP continues to do, and how does a judge? who you are as a judge I, how can you say there's no merit for compassionate relief for a dying individual who is not only not at stage one you're at stage four yep. which means there is no recovery there is no situation that can help you how do you, or how do you come back with a decision as a judge to say there's no merit. Cassie, give me your thoughts on that. Oh, <laughs> uh, can you hear me okay, Lamont? Yes. Yeah, I I am at a complete loss. My thoughts are just the, the lack of compassion, the lack of heart, uh, the lack of common sense. Yes. Why can't they take their own mother or daughter or wife or a husband and imagine them in that situation wouldn't they want them to have the care wouldn't they want to be with their loved one as they are dying and care for them but why do they feel the need to deny our families just because somebody is incarcerated well the problem cassie uh is this is a culture issue regarding the incarcerated of america they have a opinion. They think whoever's incarcerated doesn't matter how they're treated because they don't matter. No. They don't count anymore. But that's wrong. Because well, if you look at the numbers of people, if this lady, this young lady 
had a drug problem. She had a drug problem. Mm-hmm. No. But you throw her in a cage and you move these bodies around who are dying and ill and hurting as if they're just cattle with no compassion. The reason compassionate release is not on the forefront of the minds of the people in charge because there ceases to be compassion. They're not treated with compassion. You can't have compassionate release without compassionate people. Mm-hmm. Right. No, these these, these people that work at the BOP, um, not all of them, but the vast majority. And I, I just want to say I work with over 25 federal inmates. Certainly, this woman is the most seriously ill woman that I have worked with. But um, these people almost exclusively at the BOP are callous individuals. They are hardened individuals because yep. this is this is their job and maybe at one time they had some sort of a heart, but um I think they just have to suck it up or I don't know how you want to say it, in order to go to work every day and, you know, deal with the the quote work that they have to do. But, I mean, I get this kind of feedback from everybody, whether they are ill or whether they're perfectly healthy and just have an occasional toothache or something like that. It is horrific to try and get any kind of treatment. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree. agree with that. And, and then, ladies, I don't want to hold you guys too long. I know, Rachel, I'm not sure how you are yeah. on the schedule. Um but uh, we got a lady by the name of Jennifer Evans we're going to bring on. But I don't want to hold you guys. If anybody has to go, please let me know now. Uh, and uh, but this conversation is going on next week as well on this show. But I want to be very uh, uh, conscious of your time uh, and, and how, you, how are you guys looking on time tonight? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, okay. I, I can stay on. Okay, I, had, me- I had one, uh, you know, short paragraph, and I don't want to take over the show, but it is from this woman. She wrote how she feels, and if, you know, if you're interested in hearing it, I'm more than happy to read it so okay. that you can hear directly from her heart. But, well, you know, it's okay, too. I don't, like I said, I'm just, I'm have, just here to contribute. Well, we appreciate you. We have no problem with that. Um I'm going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with Jennifer Evans to let her story be told. Uh, And then as I get closing remarks from you ladies tonight of how do we go forward, how do we fight this fight of injustice, uh, I'll have you share that paragraph that you have with you. Does that work? Oh, that's fine. Okay. This, ladies and gentlemen, this is AJC Radio. You can call in to 646-200-0628. As we address compassion, compassionate release, denied in America's criminal justice system. And I'll tell you what, it's out of control. The ailing, the ill, the hurting, the elderly, the mentally challenged find themselves behind the wall of cruelty. We're going to deal with that on the other side of this break as we continue with Cassie, our very special guest tonight, Rachel Douglas, Georgine Arsons. And coming up, we're going to hear from Jennifer Evans, who was denied compassionate release even with the First Step Act. And there's one reason for that. They call them the BOP. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. 
Sergeant Michelle Garcia served meritoriously in Iraq and has the medals to prove it. Soon after leaving the Navy, Lieutenant Chris Scott found a job, a home, and started a family of his own. Foreman Richard Stokely took the skills he learned in Vietnam and put them to good use as a paramedic. But soon after leaving the military, each of these veterans fell on hard times and faced homelessness. Even after Michelle lost all her savings, even after Chris wasn't able to pay his mortgage, and even after Richard battled alcoholism for years, they each reached out for help when they needed it most. A simple phone call put them in touch with a trained professional from the Department of Veterans Affairs. That call got Michelle a place to stay until she could afford one of her own, put Chris in touch with employment assistance, and found Richard a substance abuse program. These veterans are success stories not only for how they were able to help others while serving their country, but for how they were able to let others help them. If you know of or are a veteran in need, make the call. The United States houses more human beings in prisons than any other country in the world. This is true whether you're counting total numbers or in relation to population size. This wasn't always the case. The number of prisoners in the U.S. began to rise dramatically in the 1970s. So what changed in America compared to other countries? While there are several competing theories, a look at the data reveals that a significant part of the prison growth in the last 40 years has been driven by the war on drugs. Here's the data. By 1980, there were over 315,000 prisoners in state and federal facilities. 57% were violent offenders. 30% were property violators, such as thieves or those convicted of fraud. 5.5% of inmates were in for public order and other miscellaneous offenses. And the remaining 7.5% were nonviolent drug law violators. Ten years later, the drug war had grown, and the total American prison population had more than doubled to over 740,000 inmates. The proportion of offenders in each type of crime had also changed dramatically. The most growth occurred in the nonviolent drug offender population, which grew to a significant 24%. And this last statistic actually understates the influence of the drug war on prison populations. Many studies have shown that drug prohibition causes violent crime by leading to the formation of gangs and cartels. And thus, it is safe to say that the number of violent criminals under prohibition is higher than it would otherwise be. From 1990 to 2000, the drug-driven population growth continued. By 2000, the total prison population had almost doubled again to over 1.3 million inmates. And by 2010, the prison population was up to 1.6 million people. The growth has started to settle and even decline in recent years, but the proportions of offenses are retaining their post-1990 levels. America's unique methods of enforcing drug prohibition seem to parallel its unique prison population. And one has to ask, is our country really better off with so many nonviolent drug offenders behind bars? Are drug users likely to be cured from addiction by being locked up? Has locking up dealers and users lessened the demand for drugs? Certainly, the effects on overall usage could not be called a success. And yet we spend billions every year on this war and lock up hundreds of thousands. Surely there must be a less costly approach to addressing drug use in America.
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is AJT Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. Tonight, we are troubled, we are perplexed with what we have heard on the show tonight as a result of a lack of humanity coming from leadership in this country in the Bureau of Prisons. This is something that is, I am overwhelmed tonight by the callous feeling by people who are behind the wall, by those who are to oversee the safety and the security and the health of the inmates in which they govern. We have power-hungry people who believe if you're in prison or incarcerated, anything you get, you have coming to you. But we have found out tonight through our guest on this show, people are dying. Body bags are being filled for a lack of humanity for the hurting and the dying. Compassionate release is in position for one reason, that compassion be shown. Where have we come as a society, as a people, when the hurt and the pain of another does not matter because of their location in a prison cell? Does humanity change because of that? It should not be. We are joined tonight by a very special guest, Cassie Monaco, a true advocate for justice, who as a result of her conversation a week ago, was this show born to address compassionate release denied. We're also joined by Rachel Douglas, Georgine Arsons, and it is my very, very special privilege to bring in Jennifer Evans, who has something to say as well. Ms. Evans, are you with us? Yes, I'm here. Thank you so much for your patience with us and getting you on this show. Uh, I'm going to yield the floor to you to tell your story. We've heard from Cassie. We've heard from Rachel. We've heard from Georgine. I'd like to hear from you right now what your your thoughts are on what this show has covered tonight and what you have to share. Yes, it's very sad how our country has came up with the law for compassion relief. The society that we live in our Congress, uh, or let me say the prosecutors are not following the rules of compassionate release. Mm-hmm. My husband um, has been incarcerated for 12 years for a conspiracy. He is a paraplegic. And we applied for a compassionate release through the BOP, and they denied it. So we had an attorney. The reason that they gave that his condition wasn't under certain type of criteria to meet the compassionate release. And because of the BOP doctors stating that his condition wasn't a criteria, I hired a private independent doctor to give his own opinion and evaluate my husband's condition. My husband has a bone infection called osteoponiasis. It attacks the immune system and it breaks down 
the tissue in, in, in the bones because he's a paraplegic and because he had pressure ulcers. My husband has been hospitalized five times in one year. And it, wow. it's bringing tears to me because my husband's in Talladega, Alabama. He got so ill because they transferred him to the hospital where he had to stay in the hospital from October of 2019 up until they found him a bed space in Butler, North Carolina of January of 2020. This is how bad. He was on seven antibiotics, a catheter. They ran a CAT scan, found out that the infection had spread to the left side of his body. Mm-hmm. We've reached out to the prosecutor on several occasions, our new attorney, and the prosecutor basically told my attorney that I gave him life 12 years ago, and he deserved life. My attorney argued with him and the judge that as a country, we came to a decision to bring a law in effect for compassion of relief. Life does not mean life anymore. As a country, we came to this decision. And for this prosecutor to make this type of judgment in front of a judge, it babbles me. Now, we are in the South, in Alabama. My husband is a African-American. So the odds is, he's fighting the odds here in Alabama. He's fighting the odds. My husband is suffering so bad to where he sent me an email. He said, because I emailed him and asked him, was he back in the hospital? Because he said he got sick again. He emailed me back and said, I'm not in the hospital, just going through it. He said, this place is more dangerous than Talladega. He said, I don't know what the doctor's problem is. He said, it's crazy. I'm going through it. This doctor is pissing me off. I don't know what the hell is his problem is, but I'm suffering. I shouldn't be suffering like this. I tell him on Monday when he comes in that I'm not supposed to suffer like this. He tells me that the prosecutor contacted him and he gave him a summary report of me. So this prosecutor is really has a big hole on the BOP. Well, we fail to realize these prosecutors talk to the BOP. They tell them what they want these reports to say. To stop these young men and women from getting compassion or relief. And it's crazy how these people are suffering in the hands of the BOP and the prosecutors has a lot to do with it. And they are so, and, and let me first say, uh, Ms. Evans, I'm so sorry um, for the state uh, of your husband at this moment and for the lack of humanity that has been demonstrated to you by prosecutor in the Bureau of Prisons. Uh, I'm going to be in touch with all of you tomorrow sometime in the next couple of days. We're going to see what a Just Cause organization can do to reach out to members of Congress uh, to do something that will hopefully, uh, as a result of this show, bring some awareness to where it must be and get it to the people in power. This is unacceptable. The prosecution has no jurisdiction. Once you leave the courtroom of any court in this country, and you are sentenced to the Bureau of Prisons, prosecution 
the government of the United States has no further jurisdiction to do or say anything. That is the law. But I listen. They have a big influence. Absolutely. And until people call them out on this type of conduct, it will continue. Until people send letters and write and talk and cry out against this type of inhumanity that our citizens, I don't care if you're locked up or not, it is the law that you are allowed medical treatment and good medical treatment as a citizen of the United States of America, whether you be bound or free. And what they're doing in these situations, I am so very sorry for what I have heard tonight. I am troubled, sincerely troubled as an advocacy organization. And we will speak out against it. I, we will be doing a part two on this show next next thir- next uh, Thursday. Uh, not enough time to get through all of it tonight. But I want to say to all of you ladies, Rachel, Georgine, Jennifer, Cassie, uh, let's work together to bring yes. awareness to American people on this. This is an election year. I have a Absolutely. feeling that, I have a feeling a lot of ears are going to be open to listen because those are votes. Well, let me say, right, so let me say this. I've reached out to my Congress. I've, he told, he sent a letter back to me, or or let me say one of his representatives, um, well, actually it's the Senate. He, she said because he don't know my husband personally, he cannot write a letter of a recommendation. You know what I told her? Well, I didn't know him personally when I voted to put him in office in Montgomery. So Amen. he told me that I did my research on him. Get up, do research on my husband. Pull his medical record. Pull his background, his conduct in prison. Get to know him. Write a letter to the, the prosecution. Write a letter to whoever. I didn't know you when I put you in office, but you're going to tell me you don't know my husband, so you can't write a letter or a recommendation to the prosecutor or the attorney general? That baffles me. Who's the senator? Doug Jones. Senator Doug Jones. And he's a Democrat. So I'm like, really? Is he he in the state office or 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 in Washington, D.C.? In Washington. Okay. And and he... He represents what district? He represents the Northern District. Okay. Listen, this is what I'm going to do. And to all of you ladies, I am going to be in touch with you offline. We're going to get all that information. I'm going to give you contact information for me, uh, email, phone number, all of that stuff. We are going to fight against this. This is, yeah. is this, this is a cause to fight. <laughs> People should not have to suffer that family members should not have to suffer. What I've heard on this show tonight, and, and make no mistake about it, and, and Cassie, as you said earlier, mm-hmm. this is a couple of cases. This is not easy. Can yeah, you imagine? Yeah. imagine how large of a problem this is? How many families are suffering every day as their loved ones are treated so cruelly? We are going to stand against it. Um, Cassie, I invite you back next week to join us. Anybody else you may know that has a story to tell, please come on this show if you have time, because this is imperative that we get this out to the American people. This is un- this is uncomprehendable to me, and I don't care what a person's done. What makes America America is that you know what? 
You don't have to keep punishing me once you sentence me once to prison. I don't have to be punished any further. My freedom has already been taken. So I'm just going to get in here and get you. And these are people that uh, are in wheelchairs. They're stage four of cancer. These people are hurt. You know the pain that comes with cancer? The pain Mm -hmm. of the physical uh, tearing of this body. And you've been oppressed on top of that by the Bureau of Prisons just to sit up and say, why would a prosecutor write a letter opposing compassionate release? How do you do that? And from everything I've heard tonight, how do you do it? That's right. And everything I've heard tonight are extreme circumstances where immediately the DOP has too much power. That's the problem. They have too much power. Yeah. Young lady, hey, listen, uh, Georgine, did you had a, a paragraph to read? I think we were up to we're up against the clock by about three minutes. No, that, that that's quite all right. Don't worry you, about that. Well, I want you to do this. I want to invite you back next week as we do part two of this of this topic. I will promise you, I'll give you a platform to read that letter. I'm interested in hearing it and hearing from the heart. All right. Of that and uh, you, you know, I just wanted to mention real quickly. You know, we, we haven't given up. We are filing a reconsideration motion for this woman. It's just we're gathering more test results. So we're, we're not giving up. We are fighting the BOP on this. Well, we're listen, the just cause is behind you in that fight. Uh, I will send a letter to the Bureau of Prisons, to the director, uh, and we will send it to every possible place we can explaining your story. So I'm going to be in touch with you guys. Yes, I think our, our people please, are getting... And please do my husband too, because he, he, he's so no, amazing. Miss Evans, we're going to be on top of that. I'm going to get... Uh, I think our team is going to get your phone numbers for me. Uh, I will definitely be in touch with you. You'll have all my contact information, and we will join together in this fight. You have my promise on that, okay? Thank you. Okay, and a very special thanks to all of you ladies for taking time out of your evening to join us tonight. We appreciate it. You guys have a wonderful night. Cassie, I'll be in touch with you offline. Okay, thank you. Okay, take care, ladies. Have a good evening, okay? There you have it, folks. Um, This is unbelievable. And as Cassie said, this is only four cases. And they shook me tonight. Should not be. This is this is this is horrible. Dennis, your thoughts very quickly. Yeah, this has been a great show, but it's been a sad one. Uh, we really see how uh, giving too much power to prosecutors and uh, the BOP, and there's no oversight. There's no one saying no. You cannot. No, you will do this now. Uh, you know, taking their time, dragging their feet. And look at the lives that are affected. But again, I appreciate all the guests that came on tonight. Uh, they opened my eyes. They let me see some things that truly uh, I couldn't believe could ever happen. But now I know. And again, AJC Radio is all about uh, true justice. And, and I believe that, that in, in any way and anyhow, uh, we're going to help to get, get these folks some justice. I think, you know, it's important for our listeners to understand um, that if, you're, if your loved ones are dealing with any kind of health issues, you know, the BOP is not going to be there uh, to, to help and assist. They're not. And these are, these are sad examples of. And it's, it's just sad. The, the stories were 
really just horrific, and we need to be aware. Stephen. Absolutely. I mean, just if this, if this show tonight didn't shake you to your core about how people are treated behind the wall, especially those that have terminal illnesses, the the, the elderly, those that are no threat to society, then you need to you need to take a long hard look in the mirror because you I mean you've hear you've heard the tears in people's voices about you know their family members behind the wall and trying to get them compassionately released. Kendrick. And the issue is, uh, this why are all these stories similar? It's almost like this is just a rubber stamp. They're not even giving any of these cases. Any, any attention. Any attention. So. Yep. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Join us next Thursday. We'll be doing part two, compassionate release denied in our criminal justice system. Cruelty beyond words. Till next time, America. Good night.
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.